This is a Federal News Network podcast. That executive order on cybersecurity from the White House last week, where do you even begin with an 8,000-word tome with dozens of deadlines and action items? Contractors have been parsing it out. For one view, we turn to the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. Ms. Castro, good to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. So what did your members think of this executive order? Because it is a lot in there, a lot to just even read and figure out. You almost need a whiteboard. So, Tom, as you know, we have over 400 member companies of the Professional Services Council, and many of them are interested in parsing out, as you put it, this executive order. It is surprisingly comprehensive. It claims to be bold, to push for bold changes and significant investments. Obviously, we haven't seen any investments yet. It's a little bit too early since the executive order just came out last week. But we should expect contractors to see new contract clauses in the next 6 to 12 months. This train has left the station and it is barreling down pretty fast. One area where we are particularly watching is this information sharing mandate that was laid out in the executive order. The goal was to remove barriers to threat information sharing. And what that means is that there will be new requirements for contractors to collect, preserve, and then report on some of the threat incidents that they're seeing. And currently, you know, we are doing it in a very piecemeal way throughout the U.S. government, and this will take a more holistic approach to how we are applying government-wide requirements to all agencies involved. Yeah, a couple of thoughts here. One, this information sharing that you mentioned, and it is emphasized heavily. In some ways, this idea goes back to the very beginnings of the Homeland Security Department itself, when each of the critical infrastructure pieces of the economy were supposed to have a federal agency counterpart to information share with. And that has happened only piecemeal, even though it was enshrined in enabling legislation and in the way the department was set up. So in some ways, it's kind of forcing what should have been going on all along. It's not new in that sense. That's absolutely right. And, you know, when the Department of Homeland Security was created back in the day, they had something called a National Communications Information Sharing you know, Center, NCIC. That has been subsumed into this Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, still resident at DHS. And actually, we're having a PSC is holding a Tech Trends Conference next week, next Tuesday, with the director of the National Risk Management Center there, Bob Kalaski. And I suspect what we're going to find is that CISA, as it's called, is vastly underfunded to look at things like this beyond the .gov domains, but into the .com domains. And we've seen some of the wicked effects, really, of infrastructure security as it plays out in the cyberspace with the dark side ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline not too long ago. And what that impacted in terms of 5,500 miles of pipeline and a lot of southeastern U.S. states scrambling to fill um, sometimes Ziploc bags with gasoline. So this is not a small area in terms of cybersecurity and its impact on not only what government can do, but what industry can do. And this is a conversation that's been long in coming. The fact that we have a new executive order that is just a tome in terms of directions it's giving for tasks to various agencies, whether it's OMB, whether it's the National Institute for Standards and Technology and some NIST guidelines that have to come out for supply chain security, this is really a soup-to-nuts executive order. And the fact that we can probably see contract clauses change as soon as six months from now, 
I think there's a lot of wood to chop in front of us. Yes, that was my other question, something you mentioned in the very beginning, and that's the contract clauses, because the opening of the executive order, the first segment, is all about procurement more than cybersecurity measures themselves they want agencies to take. And so are you getting a sense yet of what types of clauses or what the clauses will require at this point, or is that yet to be worked out? So there are several areas where contract clauses will need to be changed or terms and conditions may need to be changed within existing contracts and certainly contracts going forward. One is on this information sharing that we raised early in our conversation here. The other one is on supply chain security and what they're calling critical software. And so in terms of what's compliant, what's not compliant, NIST, the National Institutes for Standards and Technology, have to come up with the guidelines first introduce them to DHS, and then have some regulations changes. So I think in the short term, we'll see more regulations regarding this information sharing piece. And the longer or the, I guess, taller pole in this particular tent is the compliance with critical software and some of the other guidelines that will be coming out of NIST in a longer conversation with the Department of Homeland Security. So this is a space where a lot of our member companies are really not scrambling, but taking a step back and saying, Where can we influence the development of regulations? What's in the realm of the possible? Because they all understand it's not just national security at this point. It's economic security. It's infrastructure security. It's a much wider swath of government agencies involved. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro. She's Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And I want to switch subjects here a minute because we could spend an hour on the executive order. It takes two hours to read it. But uh, I wanted to ask you about a letter that the council has written to the heads of USAID, the State Department, and the Secretary of Defense regarding this ongoing, lingering, also an unknown is what is to become of contractors that have been supporting operations in Afghanistan. What are you asking for from these leaders? So we, alongside the two other trade associations, signed a letter to Secretaries Blinken, Austin, and also Ambassador Power over at USAID to ask for some collaborative forums, one in Kabul and one here in Washington, D.C., where contractor concerns can be given due consideration, but also where the government can benefit from lessons learned. This is not the first U.S. military drawdown that we've seen in the Middle East, South Asia. Contractors have been involved in every single drawdown in that region. And so there are lessons learned that if only they could mine the wealth of knowledge that exists within the government contracting community, we could probably take some steps forward. I would say some of the concerns that the contractors are voicing are not unfamiliar. It's a lot of the security posture concerns that anytime U.S. military forces withdraw or have retrograde operations out of a particular country or region, you know, contractors are often there with, you know, terms and conditions and, and requirements that they have to fulfill, whether the U.S. military is there or not. How safe are those employees? What are the concerns that they have regarding their ability to get out for development projects, to support diplomatic missions? It's a real set of concerns that have existed before Afghanistan, but they would like to be included in this conversation as the U.S. government figures out what's staying there and what's leaving. That's right, because even though the military is leaving, presumably by September or whenever it is, contractors will be there a long time because the State Department's not leaving. And USAID is also staying, Tom. I think we've even seen some requests for proposals coming out from USAID that are five-year contracts that are firm fixed price. And it's a real struggle to find out how member companies can bid on those contracts without knowing basic questions like, what's the security going to be like in five months? 
not only that, but five years from now, it is unknowable at this point. And finally, a related matter, of course, is contractor involvement right here in the U.S. of A. as the COVID guidance continuously changes and more people are vaccinated. What are you seeking and what are you hearing for contractors returning to the workplace? So that's a great set of questions too, Tom, because as you all know, the CDC came out with new mask guidance midweek last week and states like Virginia and Maryland here close to home in the National Capital Region have also come out with new guidance over the weekend contracting community, you know, some of them work on site side by side with civil servants and military personnel. They are thinking about what return to workplace looks like. We don't we don't call it return to work because they would argue that they've been working this entire time, but the return to workplace in terms of health considerations and cost. You know, some places have downsized over the last year or sublet out their space and now they have to figure out how to come back into this area. So we at PSC are working with member companies as well as the Arlington Economic Development folks to figure out what exactly does workplace look like and how can we have this conversation when we don't have requirements for vaccinations because they are still under the emergency use authorization. Sometimes I wonder, when did the world get so complicated? Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Thanks so much for joining me. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcaster, wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff To Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke, he worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt. Uh, but 
I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees, 
It's in an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. And you've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision.
If you own a small to medium-sized business that kept employees on payroll through COVID, you may have a big cash refund waiting for you. The Employee Retention Credit is a tax credit of up to $26,000 per employee. And now, more businesses than ever qualify. The experts at RefundsPro.com specialize in cutting through the red tape of qualifying for this government program. Most of their refunds are over $100,000. Even businesses that have received PPP funds may be eligible. And there are absolutely no fees unless you receive a refund. So there's no reason not to apply. If your business experienced shutdowns, limited capacity, supply chain challenges, or reduced revenue due to COVID, you likely qualify. RefundsPro.com has already helped hundreds of businesses. So don't lose the refund you're owed by missing the deadline. Get started today with a free 5-minute questionnaire at RefundsPro.com. That's Refunds with an S, Pro.com.